Welcome to the Kingdom Crossroads Podcast with Pastor Bob Thibodeau. Pastor Bob conducts personal interviews with Christian influencers from around the globe, helping Christian authors, recording artists, CEOs, entrepreneurs, nonprofit leaders, and yes, pastors and ministry leaders to get the word out about what they are doing to impact the world with the gospel. Our podcast has been rated in the top one half percent of all podcasts in the world by ListenNotes.com, so you know your message will be heard. Now, here is your host with today's interview, Pastor Bob Thibodeau. Hello, everyone, everywhere. Pastor Robert Thibodeau here. Welcome to the Kingdom Crossroads podcast today. We're so blessed you're joining us for the continuation of our great interview with Terry Brown, author of Sunflowers Beneath the Snow. It's a historical fiction set in the Ukraine. And, you know, who knew when she wrote this book that it was so timely? Amen. If you missed any of the prior episode in part one, go back and catch up because I just don't have the time to replay all the important parts we covered yesterday. So let's rejoin the interview now with Terry Brown as we discuss Sunflowers Beneath the Snow. How did how did you do all the research, you know, on the language and the customs and the food and, and, and preparation for writing the book? So I started out with a really broad, broad overview, you know, kind of like an encyclopedia kind of, of overview, because I knew nothing about Ukraine. I had three facts that I knew. Ukraine had been part of the Soviet Union, Ukraine had become independent, and this and Russia had invaded in 2014. That's it. I knew nothing else. Nothing else. So yeah, I was like I was like a person with a blank slate. So I started out with this really broad overview and I actually though my story started in 1973, I kind of went back well into the 1800s to understand what is the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. And anyone who's done any research at all will tell you that this relationship, what's going on today, is not new. And it's not even 20th century new or 19th century new. This This is generations upon generations upon generations where there has been, you know, fighting over where does the boundary go? You know, like yeah. who's who, who's who. Um, so I did a lot of research so that I could understand that. Then I created a timeline of like Ukrainian events, things that happened, and then kind of put that along with some world events so that I had a feeling like what's okay. going on where. Mm-hmm. And then I just started writing. And then when I would get to a, a section like, Okay, so I'm in 1991, and I have my characters standing in a bread line. Well, I looked up 1991, Ukraine, and then just started trying to find what's going on. Well, I found out it was one of the worst winters, mm. the one of the coldest on record, and they had fuel shortages and food shortages. So I wrote that into the story because my thought was, is anyone in 1991 who was standing in a food line would have had trouble getting food and they would have trouble being warm, obviously, if they don't have fuel and they don't have food and it's a cold winter. And so I was able to use those facts. You know, where is my character now? Yeah. What's going on then? The other thing that I did was because although it's historical fiction, which just really makes me feel extraordinarily old because apparently <laughs> anything in the 70s is considered historical. And it's like, great, I must be a dinosaur. So (laughs) I just, (laughs) Um, but 
people, there are still a lot of people who've lived in Soviet bloc countries who are alive and well and, and, and talking about it. And so I got on several of these discussion boards and just asked people, so what was your experience like? And listened. And you heard a lot of, of stories of deprivation, of, you know, misery. But the thing that I tried to pull out in my book is that despite that, People are resilient and they still have hope and they still get married and they still have children and they still live lives and they still are happy and they have customs and traditions. And so there's that whole other side. And that's what I tried to bring out in this book is that despite all of the misery that these women were still flourishing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Amen. You you mentioned about the seventies being ancient you know, <laughs> the first time I ever felt old was about 1989. My daughter came home from school. She says, Dad, do you have your old uh, high school letterman's jacket or any clothes from the 70s? I, was, I think the letterman jacket might be in the closet somewhere. I don't know why. Because I graduated in 77. And uh, she says, because we're having oldies day at school. He goes, oldies day, seven, seventies aren't old. What are you talking about? <laughs> How can you have an oldie days for the seventies? That's not old. And then I got thinking about, well, when I was in school in the seventies, we had the fifties oldies day. day. So, yeah, here it is the close to the nine. Yeah. Well, okay, okay. So someone told me, the, <laughs> someone told me the other day that when we were in, so I graduated in 82, that when we were in high school, the difference between where we were and World War II is the difference between where the high school students are now and us. Mm-hmm. And I thought, but the World War II people were old. <laughs> <laughs> amen, amen. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, amen. So that's, yeah, right. On a different topic, <laughs> I keep telling my grandkids, you know, one's getting married this week. I said, how is it you guys keep getting older, but I stay the same? I haven't oh, no. My out. children have oh, reached my age. Yeah. I don't know. how. <laughs> <laughs> so do you ever get writer's block? And if you do, what do you do to counter it? So I don't get what I, th- what I think most people consider writer's block. I think writer's block is just when life has gotten in the way. And so you have something else that's top of mind that won't allow you to sit down and be creative. So whenever I have something that that's like a writer's block where I think I can't write, I just sit and, and evaluate my life and figure out what is the thing that is that is stopping me? What What is it? Is it something that I can fix? Like, is it just, I'm too busy, I have too many things going on, and therefore I need to pull back a little and give myself the space? Is it a particular, I don't know, deadline that that's kind of in my way that if I'll go ahead and get that done, whatever it is I'm procrastinating and, you know, pretending it isn't there, if I'll get it done, that will open up space? Or is it just whatever's on my mind is something I can't fix, I need to turn it over to God and say, hey, you know, my child, and I can't fix it, your child, here it is for you to open up space. So for me, it's just getting rid of whatever that thing is that's taking up my mind space 
And once I do that, the writing comes back every time. And I look at it, all those years that that I didn't even consider writing when I was in that abusive relationship, it's because I didn't have the mind space. Like, I was too busy. I was too busy surviving. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and as soon as I got out of that, whoo, the writing came. <laughs> and I think, you know, I think that's yeah. that's just the way it is. You know, it's so for me, when I hear someone say they have writer's block, what I would tell them is, is then you need to probably take a, a self-care day, pull back, figure out what that thing is that's bothering you and come up with your solution. Yeah. And if it's a thing that you can do nothing about, well, you know, that's where, that's where prayer and God come in, you know? And once you, once you find that solution, then for me, every time my writing comes back with no problem. Amen. When we visited Key West, gosh, almost 10 years ago now, I had to go see the Hemingway house, Ernest Hemingway's house. And on the tour, they took you into his studio where he would do his writing. And they said he would sit there and he would write. I'm trying to remember it. I want to say this. It might be off a little bit. I think they said five pages. He would write five pages every day. Sometimes he was in that office for 15 minutes. Sometimes it was 15 hours. That was his goal. Five pages on his novels every day. And, you know, it's interesting when I hear stuff like that, it it kind of makes me cringe because I am, I am not that, um, I don't know, dedicated. I don't know what it is. Like <laughs> the idea that I'm going to sit down in front of the computer and write whether I feel like it or not, just, oh, it makes me cringe. I don't like to be told what to do. And somehow that feels like someone is like, you know, (laughs) demanding that I, that I be creative. Um, So for me, I just try to find, I find blocks of time. I like, like I said, I'm a, I'm a binge writer. I like blocks of time. I have a, uh, a big writer's retreat coming up where I have two full weeks where I have nothing except writing. And I am so excited about it. I have so many things that I, I'm forcing myself not to write because they're there and they're ready because they know this is coming. But it's like, nope, we're going to wait until we get there. And I'm going to sit down and just let it all out because I have two full weeks. You don't want to get there and then have nothing. So, yeah. So when you go on something like that, does it, like you're in a group setting and then you have classes or something, then you go off and so, write it, or, or do you go to a, a cabin up in the mountains all by yourself and lock the door? But you know, there's two and, different you know. kinds, right? <laughs> so there's the, the first kind that you said, and I've been to those. Those are for learning. I like those for learning. But when it comes to me doing my binge writing, I like to be not necessarily alone. The one I'm going to, uh, there's usually two to three other writers. We have the top of a mansion that is given just to writers. So I have my own room and, and desk and area to be. There's a writer's porch, which you can be out there. No one else is out there but you and maybe those other writers. And then in the in the evening when the mansion is closed to the public, you have the whole mansion that you can go right in. There's f- over 400 acres Wow. That you can go walking on beautiful gardens and no programming. Mm-hmm. So you're in charge of your own food. 
and they essentially give you a bed and a desk. Well, what works for me is when I'm here at home in this office, which I love and I have it yellow, which is my favorite color. And I have all kinds of, of stuff about the beach because that's what really you know drives me. I can't write for long periods in this office because the dog needs to go out and the laundry needs to be done. And I'm thinking about dinner and, oh, wait, did I get that out of the freezer? And, oh, oh, I got to get that into the crock pot. And life kind of just keeps jumping into my office with me. But when I'm on one of these retreats, I've, I've turned off my phone. I've told any client that I'm still working with, don't expect me to answer. I'm not here for two weeks. You don't, you know, I don't look at my email except for once a day at the end of the day when I'm done. And I tell my husband that if he needs me, I'll call him. (laughs) (laughs) And I devote the entire day to doing what I want to do. If I need a break, I take a break. If I don't need a break, I don't take a break. If I'm not hungry at at a a normal mealtime, I don't eat. If I want to stay up till three in the morning, I do that. If I want to get up at at five in the morning, because that's when I wake and I do that. I don't have any, and it's fabulous for me. Amen. Amen. So, So do you go up there with a book in mind that you're going to be working on? Usually because I know that it's coming, I've been thinking. So I do have a book in mind. It's a, it's set in North Carolina in the probably 1890s. I don't know exactly the year yet. I've got to do a little more research. But it's going to be about someone who is a healer, who ha- you know has a lot of the North Carolina mountain healing art things that are that are are lost now that a lot of people haven't heard of before. And so this is before modern medicine. And this is back when people used herbs and just faith and belief that, that, you know, that they were given a gift. Um, And so, yeah, I'm going to kind of explore that. Amen. Amen. Now sunflowers beneath the snow was published. I would say in a godly time frame, as it relates Absolutely. to everything we see happening right now in the real world. I mean, it, it could be a story of a, a very real family struggling in this very real world right now. And it, although it covers almost 30 years in the story, bringing us really almost through the entire modern day of the Ukraine nation. But before we close, I want to discuss your cross-country bicycle trip again with your husband, Bruce, All right. benefiting Toys for Tots. What made you decide to take that challenge for Toys for Tots? Well, you know, it's interesting. My husband has wanted to go across the United States since 1976. There was a group of college students that did it. He, oh, he wanted to do it badly, but he was in the military and he he likes to say that uh, his sergeant absolutely refused to give him any time off to go you know, do this adventure. And um, so he was in the military for 25 years and it's really hard to take an adventure like that when, when you have a military career. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, his, his post-military career kind of took over and he just never had that opportunity, but always had that desire. Um, And then of course I told you that I wanted an adventure because I needed to prove something to myself Um, I thought that I needed to prove to other people that I still had worth, but really I needed to prove to myself that that I had worth. But then as we talked about it, we decided that it was a little selfish to be going on this, you know, 
enormous trip for completely personal reasons. Mm -hmm. And we work with Toys for Tots in our community. Um, My husband is the assistant coordinator for the, the two county area that we serve. And we just decided, why don't we try to raise $10,000 for Toys for Tots? And that $10,000, we wanted to try to buy bicycles because we never have the bicycles that kids ask for. Mm. So, you know, we might serve, um, well, last year we served over 7,000 children. And of those 7,000 children, sometimes you get as many as 1,000 asking for a bicycle. And you just don't get that number of bicycles donated or enough money to purchase the bicycles. Yeah. So we said, well, let's make that a goal. We're going to try to, you know, get bicycles for every kid that asks for one. In the end, we raised $34,000. Wow. Uh, Every child in the two counties that asked for a bicycle got one. And every organization that asked for help with the children got the help that they needed because we had all this extra. So it, it was amazing. And it was a fantastic way to keep going on the really bad days Mm -hmm. because on a bad day or a bad week or a bad two weeks, we had some of those. It would have been easy to quit if it had only been about me, Mm -hmm. but we would say it's for the kids. And then, you know, it gave you that kind of extra yeah. push to to keep moving, right? Amen. Amen. What what kind of a uh, preparation training did you take in order to get ready for the physical challenges you're about to face? So we rode about a thousand miles of training rides, but we live in North Carolina on the coast. Now I don't know what people know about North Carolina coast, but it's flat. The only place flatter would be the Florida coast, but we are so close to that, that the house that we live on is in a high spot in the county at 31 feet above sea level. So if that tells you anything, okay, we are flat here. So our training rides, even when we found, you know, hillier places to be, were nothing like the Oregon coast. As we're crossing over mountain ranges, day one, we're starting crossing over mountain ranges. So, yes, we prepared and we had, oh, I was sure that I was ready. And on day one, I started to think, I think we've made a mistake. This, this, like, like, I thought I was ready and I am not. And I had... Oh, fear and doubt and and like, oh, if it hadn't been for my husband, who, like I said, this kind of thing is not new to him. He'd never done this kind of an adventure, but he's always been active and adventurous, you know, and he had the, we can do it, we can do it. And I'm thinking, mm, I'm not so sure. Did, did he sing cadence to try and get your stride? No, no. Oh, but you know oh, what's, okay. what's funny? On day one, it, it rained. It was the end of June. We were supposed to get started in May, but COVID like threw everything off. So now it's the end of June, but it was 50 degrees. Mm. And I'm from North Carolina. When we left here, it was 90. Mm. And so the difference in temperature was significant. It was raining, which made 50 degrees miserable. And we were flying down this one hill. I mean, to me, it was 
the most ginormous hill I had ever seen in my life because it was so much bigger than anything we'd ever trained on. And we're going down this hill at about 25 miles an hour. There was traffic because there was only one main road. And, and so you were with traffic and the roads are wet and the, the spray is flying. My husband got a leg cramp. Mm. So he's trying to keep spinning, but there's nothing, there's no resistance on the pedals. And so I just felt like my feet were spinning out of control. And I, I was terrified. Abs- I knew we were going to wreck. And, and so the only thing that came to my mind was a, a hymn. I couldn't. And so I started to sing. So I started to sing a hymn. And my husband says to me, are you singing hymns? Yes, leave me alone. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was the only thing that would come. I mean, it was Wait like, you know, got to save me from this because we're going to die. We're going to die right here on this mountain. Yeah. Um, and we get down to the bottom of this of this hill, and I told my husband that we were careening down the hill. He said we were not careening. He said careening means we had no control. We were in control. I said you were in control. I was out of control. <laughs> I was careening. Um, yeah. So our first, I bet it took me a week to finally get into a rhythm in which I no longer like every moment thought this is a mistake. This is a mistake. I mean, that was kind of what was going through my head. You know, you said a cadence. That's what was going through my head. This is a mistake. <laughs> well, since you completed the trip, we know you were successful. Yes. How yes. were the Rocky Mountains on a bicycle? Because I know when I drove them in a car before, it taxed the car a few times. I mean, how uh, slow were you going up? So there were, there were times that we were going about three miles an hour. And there were other times in which we were pushing. You just get off the bike and push because mm-hmm. the amount of energy that you're expending is so great. And your heart rate is so great that it makes more sense to get off the bike and push because then your heart rate goes down. Mm-hmm. You get to the top of that that hill and you've expended all that energy. Well, guess what? You have to go down that hill and up the next one. So you have to kind of learn at what point are you expending too much energy? When do you need to rest? The f- we learned a lot. Uh, pride, by the way, will really get you. Our first mm, probably 10 days, very prideful. We were not getting off the bike. We were going <laughs> to ride the whole way. Well, you soon throw pride out the window and realize get off the bike, accept help when it's offered. I mean, like <laughs> because pride will just, I mean, it'll, it'll stop the forward momentum every time if we had let pride be the the driver we would have never made it across the united states yeah amen how long did the entire trip take so it was 72 riding days but we were out there for a little over 90 days because you know i tell people we're not spring chickens and you have to take you have to take breaks so yeah um but yeah it was so we averaged like 43 miles a day okay and we're out there for 72 riding days, and we averaged 10.2 miles an hour. Amen. Amen. I know you took the northern trip across, too, and then down Michigan. How was the Mackinac Bridge and Mackinac Island? I'm from so Fort Mackinac- Huron, Michigan. I'm from Michigan, so I, okay. I was reading so those blogs Bridge, on your website. Right. Mackinac Bridge is not – you're not allowed to go across it on a bicycle. Yeah. yeah. 
And all I can say to that is, you know, thank God for small favors. Um, <laughs> because had I been going across it, I would have been terrified. Like that didn't look friendly. Um, so we found someone at a campground who was willing to transport us across. So that worked beautifully that way. Um, it's funny. In fact, I was at that campground and this woman came up to me um, and they have, you know, this big truck and a beautiful trailer. And we're in this little teeny tiny tent soaking wet because it's always raining. And um, she came over to me and she said, so I'm trying to understand what you guys are doing here. So I explained the trip and she said, so I'm here to help you use a safe word. If you want me to to get you out of this all you have to say is take me and i said okay so that was my safe word um and it just made me laugh that she was that but she was the person that when we realized that we weren't that there weren't there wasn't a good way to get across that bridge i just went to her and i said so i don't need to use my safe word but it would be nice if you and your husband could transport us across the bridge yeah. And so they did that for us and it, it worked yeah. out really well. I loved UP Michigan. Oh, yeah. beautiful, beautiful mm -hmm. area. Yeah. Absolutely Amen. gorgeous. In fact, my husband and I want to go back. We would like to take a vehicle, do some other day cycling trips. Mm -hmm. There were so many things we couldn't see because at the end of the day, when you got to your location, you were done. Yeah. Amen. You know, and people would say, oh, there's something beautiful. It's only five miles up the road. No, see, that's 10 because it's five there and five back. And we've already ridden 40 and we're done. So <laughs> thanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah, you got Copper Harbor, you got Lake Bailey, you got uh, the Sioux Locks. I mean, there's just so much in the UP. So much. Uh, uh, painted rocks. Painted rock. Yep. Painted rocks. Yes. Yeah. So there's like all these things that I really want to see. So we have, we have that in the back of our head that we want to get back up to Michigan and see that. Now, the one thing about Michigan we did not like is once you were no longer along the lakes, the roads in Michigan are horrific. Yep. Amen. That's right. Because of all the snow and the ice and the oh. pitted, and it's just, they're terrible. Hey folks, Pastor Bob here. That's all the time we have for today in this great interview with Terry Brown as we've been discussing her book, Sunflowers Beneath the Snow. But we'll be back with part three and the conclusion of this great interview tomorrow as, as I'll be questioning her about a unique cross-country bicycle trip she and her husband took. And it's not like anything you've heard of before. I guarantee it. Now, drop down on the show notes, click the links right there, get in touch with Terry, and be sure to order her book, Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, and especially be sure to come back for the next episode. Amen. Till then, this is Pastor Bob reminding you, be blessed in all that you do. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Kingdom Crossroads podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast so you can be notified when another episode is published. With over 800 interviews and 1,000 published episodes, Pastor Bob is known as a podcasting expert for helping others to create their own podcast to share their messages with the world. Please visit our website at www.podcastersforchrist.com. That web address again is www.podcastersforchrist.com for more information. Until next time, be blessed in all that you do.
Are you a Christian entrepreneur, coach, or author with a message that needs to be heard? Picture this, your voice reaching thousands, your story inspiring hearts, and your business flourishing like never before. Introducing Faithcasters, the ultimate platform that connects faith-driven professionals like you with the power of podcasting. Become a sought-after guest on Faith-Based Podcasts. Share your unique insights and connect with like-minded individuals who share your passion for faith and entrepreneurship as well. Imagine your expertise reaching a wider audience, expanding your network, and propelling your business to new heights. Well, it's all within reach with Faithcasters. So don't wait. Take the first step today on your journey to greatness by visiting our website at faithcaster.org. That's faithcaster.org. Join the Faithcasters community now and unleash the full potential of your faith-driven enterprise. You do not want to miss this opportunity. Faithcasters, where faith meets podcasting and your dreams become reality. Visit faithcaster.org. Let's soar together. And remember, anyone can be a podcaster, but only a Christian can become a faithcaster. Faithcasters, your voice, your platform, your success.